0: So as I was walking over, I thought maybe I should come up with a title for my talk, and um, I think it could be Peace Through Understanding or Freeing the Heart by Letting Go. Those are two possibilities. Our entire path is a um, practice of exploring the binding and the unbinding. The binding and the unbinding of the heart, body, and mind. So, exploring contraction and openness, suffering, and freedom. With love and understanding, we acclimate our hearts and minds to the spaciousness of freedom. And along the way, we see how our hearts and minds are bound and limited by the three root causes of suffering, greed, aversion, and delusion, or wanting, not wanting, and lacking understanding. Sometimes it's said that meditation is not for the faint-hearted, Because along the way, we meet the ways that we suffer. And slowly, we learn to let go. We learn deepening levels of unbinding, the peace of unbinding, the heart and mind. So probably in the last few days, you've had some experiences of seeing how your heart and mind are bound And hopefully you've even had a few moments where you see and feel some sense of of letting go of of the opening, you could say, of that binding. And you've seen, I believe, how much courage it takes to do this practice. I think it's courage just to come in this hall and sit down for 45 minutes and be willing to be with whatever experiences arise. And the darndest thing is you don't know what they're going to (laughs) be. So the, the willingness to sit in that unknowing takes a lot of courage. And I would say you've probably all felt this yearning for the unbinding of the heart and the mind. To know a heart and mind that's more open, connected, embedded in this world without argument without quibbling, without demanding the heart of peace. As Greg was saying yesterday, this is our homing instinct, or was it the day before? The day before. (laughs) They all go fast. Um, It's our homing instinct, right? This, This yearning in our hearts and our minds, and it's a beautiful quality. So this unbinding of the heart and mind comes through a deep understanding of the way life is it also comes through love we've talked about that a fair amount so today I'm going to talk more on the wisdom side the understanding side in the end I think love and wisdom compassion and wisdom work together they work in tandem and go to the same place So the Buddha taught a lot about the way reality is or the nature of reality. And this unbinding of our heart and mind comes when we can live in the truth of things and work out our issues with the truth of things. We have some issues with the way life is. (laughs) It's not exactly what we had hoped for. We had kind of, or at least I'll speak for myself, I had really hoped for a universe that was a bit more stable, um, one where I had a fair amount of control over things, (laughs) and one where I could create safety and security for this sense of self, right? Instead, we've gotten a universe of impermanence, unreliability, and one where this very search for security causes suffering, causes the binding of the heart and the mind. So we've got this universe of impermanence, anicca, in Pali language. Dukkha, usually translated as suffering, we'll get more into that, and not-self. As meditation teacher Ruth King says, nothing in life is permanent, perfect, or personal. I just love how that just summarizes things up. Nothing in life is permanent, perfect, or personal. So our practice is really about developing deeper and deeper insight into these three truths. These three truths that free the heart and the mind. This is the kind of insight that we're talking about when we call this insight meditation. Insight into the nature of reality, the way things are. Other kinds of insight arise, they're helpful. Insights into our personalities and the way we are in the world and many other things. But but, but we're what we're you could say the deepest expression of our Buddhist practice is insight into these three truths. And each one of these truths teaches us about letting go. It's said that each one of us uh, has, specializes in one of the three and that that one is our doorway into the unconditioned, into nirvana, into enlightenment. They all come together. When you understand one deeply, we understand all three because they're intertwined. But we are often drawn to one, and and you could say plunge more deeply into one of the three. So deep meditation practice is meant to mess with our cherished delusions about life. It's meant to rework how we see the world. That's pretty intense. (laughs) That's another reason that it takes courage. That's, um, you know, what we're trying to learn is, instead of seeing the world through the way we want it to be, to see the world as it actually is. T.S. Eliot, I think it was, said, most people can't handle too much reality. And that's really true all the ways we resist our practice and back up, it's because reality's so intense. It's so not what we thought it was. And yet, landing more and more fully into life as it is, is what frees the heart, teaches us to let go, sometimes called the freedom of non-clinging. Or, as my voice recognition software says, non cleaning, which I'm not sure what that is. But some of us might feel a certain freedom in not cleaning. (laughs) Non clinging. I think I finally got it to do it right once yesterday. And maybe I'm training it to say non clinging. So let's take a little, a uh, few moments to look at each one of these, and um, it's a lot of information for forty-five minutes. But I just touch on aspects of, of each of these three truths, and see see where it takes us. So the first one, anicca, impersonal. I mean, impermanent. One time, a student asked Suzuki Roshi, famous. Zen teacher, said to him, you know, I'm confused. I really don't understand all this. Can you simplify it for me? You know, give me Buddhism in one sentence. And Suzuki Roshi said, everything changes. That was his one sentence. That is the deepest truth of our lives, of life, of this universe that we've chosen to be born in change is not an aberration, it's life itself. All the way from the restless energy of a cell up to um, a changing planet. I remember in eighth grade standing in science class and my science teacher saying the only thing constant is change. And I remember just looking at him going, oh my God. It struck me as so true. It's a poignant truth. There's this dynamic tension between the truth that everything changes and our deep human wish for certainty and security. You could say that Anisha pushes our control buttons. Ajahn Chah. The famous Thai forest master says or trans actually he translates um Anicja as uncertainty. So going right to the heart of the matter there. I just teach uncertain, uncertain. People don't want to hear this and they leave. <laughs> but they'll be back. <laughs> It's true, right? How many of you are happy (laughs) to be hearing this Dharma talk on uncertainty? The reminder that everything changes. We like our universe a little more certain. Thank you. But this is the way things are. Meditation is our personal exploration of our relationship with change. I used to teach at a, a women's college, a Buddhist uh, group, a women's college nearby. And um, one day we were in our meditation group, we were talking about change. And I said, well, Buddhism talks a lot about the fact that everything changes. Um, so what? What? why does it matter? And one of the young women said, because that's basically the way things are and if you have issues with this, you need to deal with them. (laughs) And um, I just (laughs) loved that (laughs) summary. So our practice is dealing with our issues with change. It's clear, I want to make it clear that we're not re- wiping out the relative level where we try to create some security in our lives that can be very useful. Um, but we're also um, well-served by knowing how to gracefully accommodate to this truth of change. So how do we respond when things change? What are our issues? (laughs) I'm always fascinated by my mind when um, something unexpected happens, usually something I don't like, change I don't like. And I love to explore what happens. And um, I've noticed for myself that the first thing that usually happens is denial so when i used to travel i haven't been on a plane for a while now but when i used to travel i often came through chicago on the last flight home not a good idea i'll just let you know but that would be the only flight i'd have to be able to make it home at night and it wasn't uncommon for this flight to be cancelled so i get off the plane right to transfer and go to look at the board and it'd say cancel and my first would be it's not true <laughs> so I you know I'd look away from it and then I'd look again <laughs> It canceled and really it'd take me usually about three times before I started to consider the possibility that things had changed in a way that I wasn't happy with watch closely like it's pretty consistent that us humans do this and then next would be aversion. I would be upset that the flight was canceled. Didn't like it, wanted to go home. And then I'd be curious, like, how long it took until the aversion would settle down. And I'd be like, okay, how, how do I respond to this situation, to things as they are now? And how long the, it would take the aversion to settle down would depend on causes and conditions, how tired I was, how long I'd been traveling, how much I wanted to get home. One time I was coming from Burma and I um. I was flying through uh, Yangon. I had to go to teach in Bangkok that night in English Sangha. And I'd just been on retreat for three weeks. My mind was pretty, um, pretty clear. So I go up to get, I give him my um, passport for the for the flight and they look at it look at their list they start looking confused then they ask me for the itinerary give them my itinerary they look at it and they're like that flight went yesterday <laughs> and i watched my mind it was like not happening not happening don't like don't like what do i do next so it took four mind moments to accommodate because my practice was strong at that moment. It was just like, this is the way it is now. But there was still that don't like, don't like. I mean, uh, not happening, not happening, don't like, don't like. So we can explore our issues with change. So rather than tell ourselves as good meditators, we should be able to be immediately equanimous when things change, we actually explore the truth of our response. And the unbinding of the heart and mind come through this, you could say, intimate encounter with the emotional reaction to the unpredictability and incessant nature of change. So it's not, we're not trying to understand on an intellectual level, but rather on an intuitive and embodied level by being directly with the process. Hmm. Anicca makes the vibrancy and beauty of this world, but it also includes the heartbreak of loss. There's a poignancy we all share in a world and universe of change. Anicca teaches us about a tender kind of love. It's a love that includes letting go, the deepest and most mature kind of love. I love some of the Japanese poets, the hermit poets, because they're so honest about their relationship to this. For example, there's a poem from Ryokan, The Japanese Hermit Monk, from, I think, the 1800s, perhaps. Although from the beginning I knew the world is impermanent, not a moment passes when my sleeves are dry. and the hermit poet Isa after the death of a young daughter. This world of dew is but a world of dew. And yet, and yet. We feel the poignancy you now of change in these two poems. And I love these guys because they're willing to be honest rather than idealistic. They're willing to settle into our full humanity in this world of change. So we learn with the Nietzsche to love things as they are now. Not as they were, not as we want them to be. But as they manifest now, we learn to love things as they are now with a tender heart. One day I was in the woods. I have a rock that I like to sit on. And um, I I, I was sitting in the woods, and I was really feeling how the woods have changed over the years. They're, They're quieter, and the trees don't feel as healthy, and I was I was allowing room for the my emotional response to this change. Um, I, I like to, I, it's a cleaning out of my heart to to leave room for what I'm feeling. So I was feeling grief and and sadness, and um, as I allowed room for that, just made space for it. It was as if the um, trees and plants spoke back to me, and they said. We're still here. Love us as we are now. And it was a great teaching on um, Anicca and love. We love what's true now. Our aging bodies, we love what's true now. Our restless minds, we love what's true now. That's one way to flow gracefully with change is learning to love what is true now. We could call this equanimity from the heart. We should move on to the second characteristic, dukkha. I... Um, could talk hours on dukkha. It's one of my favorite subjects. Um, So we'll just uh, touch on it today. It's often translated as suffering, but it's a very full word. And suffering doesn't really quite catch it. So we often use the word dukkha. Some other translations are stress, unsatisfactoriness, and unreliability. Because everything changes, we're not going to find the happiness that we're looking for by controlling conditions. They're unreliable. You might have noticed that yourself in your own practice. One sitting is fabulous. You're having a great time. You come back in the hall for the next sitting. You're ready, right? And your mind is just restless. <laughs> you can't, we can't rely on conditions because of change. See, already we're seeing the relationships. So that's the unreliability, the unsatisfactoriness. And the stress is our attempts to find happiness through controlling conditions, our issues with change. So with the teachings of dukkha, we explore our control strategies in the face of change. We see how we try to push away what's unpleasant, and we try to keep what's pleasant. We try to push away what's unpleasant, keep what's pleasant. And we see that um, both of these moves are stressful. There's the stress part of the translation of dukkha. We might ask ourselves, with what's unpleasant, can we be with it? With a peaceful heart, for maybe one second, and I'm serious <laughs> we start out, you know, easy. A headache, knee pain, loneliness, the 10,000 sorrows. Can we rest there? Can we be with what's pleasant without trying to hold on? Holding on is stressful, dukkha. Try it out with the sunset tonight if there is one. <laughs> what's it like to just see it, let it receive it, but without trying to capture it, right? Right? just pleasant. So we explore how we relate to this changing, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, always changing, uh, feeling tone. We explore how we try to control. We see that this is dukkha, suffering, and we consider the possibility of some kind of surrender, Letting go, letting be. So we don't demand. Again, we're not demanding our hearts to be anyway. We're exploring the emotional truth of our hearts. Sometimes we're watching the heart struggle with this truth. As I said in a group this morning, practice is a process of seeing what doesn't work. So, something let 's say there 's an unpleasant ache in the shoulders, and um we hate it, right? Want it to go away, did it work <laughs> but no, no, it didn't right, so we see that we we explore all the ways that don 't work. Thomas Edison, the famous uh, inventor of the light bulb, said. I haven't failed. I've just found 10,000 ways that don't work. Sometimes that's our meditation practice. But we do learn. My friend Chaz, my fellow teacher, says, we humans are slow, but we're not stupid. (laughs) We do learn over time. We learn what doesn't work. And then we start to consider the possibility of letting go. Letting go might better be expressed as letting be. What we're letting go of is the contraction, the clinging, the holding on, the stress, the micromanaging, which is a very difficult and exhausting job. Things are changing on their own, so it's not exactly that we're letting go of things because they're moving on. What we're letting go of is the stress that we add on top of the experience. So let's move on to the third characteristic, not-self. This gives us further understanding and support for letting go. Not-self doesn't mean that you're going to disappear in a poof of smoke like some genie from a bottle. But rather, it's a different understanding of what self is. So, our usual way of understanding ourselves is that we're some permanent thing and that we would be best served by managing this permanent thing, by protecting it from the world out there, by securing it, by making sure that it gets what it wants. On a relative level, there's some usefulness there. It's a good idea. It's a good idea to take care of this relative self. So we're not erasing that level of reality. What we are starting to understand is that on a deeper level, what we call our self is the arising and passing away of experiences. Anicca, we're back to anicca, The arising and passing away of experiences. That come together because causes and conditions come together and that change when causes and conditions change. So it's impersonal, that's a third one, right? Impermanent or not permanent, not perfect, and not personal. So on one level we see that this is an impersonal process or just or a process of nature or a process of life manifesting, life taking differing forms over and over and over again. So we're sitting here minding our own business and somebody makes some noise and then anger arises. It's not our fault. It's causes and conditions coming together. What we usually do is that we identify with these experiences of heart, body, and mind. So anger arises, and suddenly we're an angry person. And we must fix ourselves. And we need to get rid of the anger. We've identified with anger, when really, it's just causes and conditions coming together. Yes, you could say now that it's arisen, it is our responsibility. So, we're going to get a little paradoxical here. It is our responsibility to respond to anger in the wisest and compassion- most compassionate way. Teek Nan Han says there's a screaming baby in the room, and it's your baby, and you have to deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> so, that's also true. But there's a way that we can hold it that's um, like this and not like this. So, kind of the seriousness and drama that we add on top of the anger, that's extra. Or a pain in our shoulder arises, and we glom onto it. We have to fix it. It's ours. We're probably going to turn into a hunchback. And we imagine a future where this pain is always going to exist. We've identified with it. What is true is that sensations are arising and passing away. It's not who we are. It's not our fault. On a relative level, we might see if putting a cushion on our our, um, lap and and raising our arms is helpful. So we still pay attention to this self on a relative level and take good care of it. But it's the way that we hold these experiences that arise. That's what we're referring to with not-self. So we identify with experience or or, um, construct our sense of self uh, to maximize uh, survival. So when the self-construction is strong, what's usually following is some kind of control or wanting, not wanting. We hope that by clinging to these experiences, holding on to them, that we might protect ourselves from our undeniable vulnerability in this world of change. We hope that we can separate ourselves out of our undeniable embeddedness in this world. We're hoping that we can separate ourselves out and protect ourselves. But this is dukkha, this is suffering. This is alienation from our deep belonging in the web of life. This is limiting who and what we are. You could say that self feels like estrangement. Isolation, cut off from being embedded in the web of life, but it feels protected. There's our dilemma as humans. So, in our meditation practice, we feel this nature of of clinging, of holding on, of identifying. And we grow increasingly willing to feel the vulnerability of non-clinging, of not holding on, of not separating ourselves. The Buddha taught that the first noble truth is dukkha. The second noble truth is this contraction, craving, clinging, all the ways that we pull in. (laughs) And the third noble truth is letting go. Unbinding from this patterning of holding on, contracting, shielding, clinging. You can call it so many words. So we really notice the contraction when it's present we notice we can feel it the, the, the tightening the tension, the stress the holding on and then we notice when it is not present when we ask you to look at your relationship to what's happening we're often talking about this understanding of not-self, the non-identification that Roxanne was talking about this morning. So we have this acronym coined by Michelle McDonald, RAIN, R-A-I-N, recognize, allow, investigate. Not investigate thinking about, investigate by being with and non-identification. We were talking at lunch about, about RAIN. And uh, one of the most delightful things to do as Dharma teachers is just talk about Dharma. It makes us happy. And um, Roxanne said, non-identification is the most important one of the four. And I have to agree with her. That's the one where the freedom is. That's the one where um, we learn how to both fully inhabit these human experiences and yet not hold on to them, not contract around them, not identify with them. So RAIN can qualify for any experience of this heart, body, and mind. This morning the example was emotions. But anything that arises, recognize, allow, investigate, and explore the possibility of non-identification, of letting go, of, you could say, too much seriousness. Letting go manifests as lightness of heart. It feels good. It's like taking off a tight shoe. Not-self has that sense of lightness. Ideas about not-self sometimes freak us out a bit. But the experience is one of freedom, spaciousness, flexibility, lightness, joy, An unencumbered heart, an unencumbered mind. So, our practice of not self, our practice of freedom, is um, not about gaining anything. (laughs) You already have everything you need, you don't need anything beyond what you have because you're human. So it's not about addition, but it's about subtraction. What we're doing is we're taking away the stress, taking away the dukkha, the clinging, the contraction, the limiting, the binding. And, and we're opening the heart-mind. I like the word unbinding. Some of you might relate to it and some not, but unbinding. how much space so through our intimate encounters with anicca dukkha and anatta we slowly transform the heart and mind and we move from taking our refuge in greed hatred and ignorance to taking um, our refuge in love and wisdom Our sticky, entangled relationship with life um, opens up. We're strong enough to have an open heart in this wild world. We trust wisdom and equanimity and love and compassion in our hearts. Trust and confidence are the path and fruit of this exploration. Can we really be with this wild and crazy world with an open heart, one that doesn't have to shut down? Are our hearts flexible enough to accommodate what comes our way? One teacher, I can't remember the name, called um, equanimity, which is um, freedom in this world, the highest mundane freedom, according to the Buddha. Um, A wholehearted cooperation with the unavoidable. There's so much freedom in that. Uh, We develop a wholehearted cooperation with the unavoidable. The unavoidable is the truth of this moment. Can't avoid it. It's right here. Can we cooperate wholeheartedly? So we're back to intimacy with all things. The fruition of of our um, exploration of Anicca, Nata, and Dukkha. The unbinding of greed, hatred, and delusion. The unbinding of this holding on and um, trying to control the world and, and identifying with this experience. The unbinding of all of that exposes our innate tendencies of compassion, joy, metta, equanimity, kindness, peace. They're already here. You don't need to, that's what I'm saying, you don't need to create them. You don't need to get anything else. They're here in our hearts. And as we... um, slowly disempower the tendencies of greed, hatred, and ignorance. These innate qualities are able to shine forth. And they're our gift not just for ourselves, but for the world. That's why we're here, transforming our own hearts and minds, so that we can spread kindness and peace in the world that we transform greed, hatred, and ignorance in our own hearts so that we can be of service in the world. Anicca, dukkha, anatta. Life is not permanent, perfect, or personal. Opening to change, we experience the wonder of this amazing display of life. Surrendering to change, we experience peace. We can rest. Perhaps the deepest wishes of our hearts to rest. Let's sit for a minute. So if there's anything that resonated, you can... Um, Take that with you. And then let the rest of the words float away. No need to figure everything out now. Grounding the attention in this body sitting here. this heart, this mind in this wild, vibrant world of change